let's talk about the original readers of these ancient words. It was addressed to churches spread across a distinct geographical location. Let's find the original readers on a modern map. On the left, you see Canada, where my wife grew up. You also see on the left, the United States, where all of you are currently located. On the left, you see Mexico. When you leave North America and go down to South America, there you will see Brazil, Argentina, Chile. You go east and you hit Africa. You see many African countries, the Congo, Algeria, Egypt, Ethiopia, Sudan. When you go way northeast, you're in Russia. And then you can go down to Mongolia, the unreached people group I find myself praying most often for. Then you can go down to China. If you go way down south, you'll meet the Aussies and lots of kangaroos and that famous theologian, Crocodile Dundee. Uh, sandwiched in the middle of this world map is where all these original readers lived. Today we call it Turkey. These were real people with real jobs and real families dealing with real struggles. And they were all part of real local churches. In fact, Peter is addressing at least six different churches. But it's likely there were multiple churches in each area, region. So he's writing to dozens of churches. And this letter is being read to these churches on Sunday as they gather for worship. All week they've been working their nine to fives. Actually, nine to five is our cultural work hours. They would have been working a lot longer hours in the Roman Empire. For months, these people have been slaving away in leather shops in the Middle East, making belts and tents and sandals. The ancient Roman Empire, which ruled this area of Turkey, was a complex society that required a number of different jobs to make the economy function. The people hearing this letter read on Sunday would go back to their jobs on Monday. They would scatter to bedsides because some were doctors, to fields because some were farmers in the countryside. They would scatter to the sea because some were fishers, to classrooms because some were teachers. Roman children started school at age seven. They would scatter to the roads because Rome had an extensive road system. Horse-drawn chariots carried these Christian readers to the markets to sell their fruit and bread, vegetables and cheese. And some of the food would sound disgusting to us today. They also sold things like mice and peacock tongues. Now they may not have had what we consider a regular diet, but they were regular people with regular names like Apias, Decimus, Gaius, Lucius, Cassia, Priscilla, Marcus, Publius, Titus, and Tiberius. Regular people with regular names and regular jobs. And Peter wanted to give these readers instruction on how to live out their faith while working at a pottery shop or working among other shopkeepers other sailors, other soldiers, among other stay-at-home mothers. Women that worked out of the home made clothing or jewelry. They did hairdressing. They sold baked goods. Men worked as gladiators, and firemen and chariot racers. 
There were writers and poets, musicians, dancers, actors. In this church, there were artisans making sculptures, craftsmen making weapons and tools. These Christians would leave church on Sunday and enter the bustling economy of the Roman Empire on Monday. They would work, eat, and live among non-Christians. And Peter tells them, arm yourself. Now, he's not just talking to soldiers. Although the Roman army was huge, so the percentage of soldiers in the Roman Empire far eclipsed any other nation. They used their army to, to conquer new territory and hold previously conquered territory. But Peter's not just talking to soldiers. He's talking to everyone. When you live and work among the heathen, you need to arm your mind with a certain way of thinking. Arm your mind with a certain way of thinking. Peter says, never forget, when you go out there, it may resemble a playground, but it's a battlefield. Church, arm your mind to follow Christ. Here's how Peter instructs you to arm your mind. In verses, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 3, he says, make a definite break with sin. In 1 Peter 4, verses 4 through 6, he says, expect pushback from those who love sin. Make a definite break with sin. Expect pushback from those who love sin. Notice verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. R.C. Sproul used to say that he hates chapters that begin with the word therefore because it's tied to everything before it. Therefore shouldn't begin a chapter because it's continuing the same flow of thought. Now we, of course, know that chapter and verse divisions aren't inspired, so we can easily tie this to last week. You remember me talking about Christ's suffering being a vicarious suffering, a sacrificial suffering, an undeserved suffering, an ordained suffering. But I don't want us to keep his suffering just in the clouds. I want us to look at his suffering in the dirt. We talked a lot last week about the spiritual aspects to Jesus' suffering. But don't forget the physical. He suffered in the flesh. Jesus went through physical suffering. Physical suffering. I don't want you to read quickly over the word suffering. I want you to have a mental picture for it. So I want to give it to you. After his bogus conviction, Christ is led to the cross. And he's carrying a, a cross beam. The criminal would not carry the entire cross through the cobblestone streets as depicted in typical pictures and movies. Just the cross beam. The, the vertical part of the cross stayed set up. It was stationary, changeless, a permanent fixture. The cross beam was hollowed out in the center and then slipped over the vertical beam. What Jesus carried weighed anywhere from 100 to 200 pounds. He shouldered a borrowed cross. See, it was borrowed, already used. It was a recycled cross. Other men's blood stains still on it. Chunks of meat loosely hanging off it. The condemned person generally had to carry the cross beam behind the nap of the neck like you would carry a, 
sack of corn. And Jesus needed to go three football fields in distance. Eventually, he collapsed under the load. Why did he collapse? Jesus was about 30 or so, in good shape, a man's man. He worked as a carpenter. I'm not saying he was like a 30-year-old Stone Cold Steve Austin, but he definitely wasn't a, a Justin Bieber. So why did he struggle with the 100-pound beam? Because before this, Jesus was stripped of his clothes. Naked, he was draped over a low post with, with his hands tied. While in this position, burly Roman soldiers, one on his left and one on his right, alternated lashings. The short-handed whip contained many leather straps with broken glass and pottery sewn into the, the ends. As the leather straps were thrown, the ends would spread and the hooks would sink deeply into his flesh before they would rip back. The whip would open up the back. History records that scour scourging was called the halfway death. In fact, quite often, a criminal would not survive the scourging. If they did, their muscles were shredded and their organs exposed. Josephus said it was not uncommon to see a rib come flying out of the person's body. Jesus would not have looked human anymore. He looked like a bloodied animal or just a pile of raw meat. You would, you would, you would have to step closer to identify if it was breathing. Because he was beat up all night long, he fell under the cross. Now you can read the word, church. Now you can read the word suffering with a mental picture. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself with that attitude of suffering. Think as Christ did about suffering. He was not surprised when it came. He knew it was inevitable. Again, Peter is not only talking to soldiers. He's talking to bakers, farmers, to stay-at-home mothers. But he's using military lingo, a word for preparing for battle. Peter looks at the church member selling tomatoes and he says, it's time to dress for war mentally. Have you ever thought of an attitude as arming yourself? In some of the earliest manuscripts, this text read, therefore Christ suffered in the flesh for you. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking, be prepared to suffer for him. Well, I'm, I'm just a shopkeeper. Be prepared to suffer. I'm just making belts. Be prepared to suffer. You know what Jesus showed us throughout many of his parables? Suffering weeds out the fakers. Those who arm themselves to follow Christ as long as the sun shines will not last when the clouds grow dark. Pain comes they will gradually fall away from Christ. Peter looks at regular people with regular names and regular jobs who are in a regular church service and he says, prepare to be bruised and battered. Let's pick it up in verse one. 
Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. First, I want to tell you what ceased from sin can't mean and then what it does mean. It can't mean sinless perfection. Some churches teach sinless perfection and there's clear evidence against that in the scripture. The Bible teaches that Christians will continue to struggle with sin. While you are free from the penalty of sin, you are not free from the pull of sin. You will battle it until the day you die. It's true you're free from the condemnation of sin, but you are not free from the attraction of sin. And it may first appear that Peter is saying, suffering will advance your sanctification. But there's nothing in the Bible that says suffering by itself guarantees spiritual growth. Many people have suffered spiritually and still play on sin's beaches. So it must mean that their willingness to suffer for the gospel is evidence that they have broken with a life of sin. By their willingness to suffer for Christ, they are demonstrating that they are done with sin. I I would rather suffer than sin. That's arming yourself to live among the heathen. When you have suffered for following Christ and still go on serving this Christ despite what you face, you've had a clear break with sin. The fact that it's costing you and you will not renounce Christ, that proves the genuineness of your faith. Uh, let, let, me get, um, let me get Greek geek with you just for a minute. This is perfect tense, indicating a permanent condition. You've made a permanent break with sin. Peter is saying, you writers, you musicians, you craftsmen, you chariot racers, make a permanent break with sin. I am saying, you realtors, you people in the medical field, you people in the cubicles, you grocery store stalkers, don't make excuses for your sin. Like you don't have the Holy Spirit's power to say no to sin. You don't have to keep giving in to sexual sin. You don't have to keep looking at pornography. You don't have to keep listening to gossip. You don't have to keep getting angry. You don't have to keep neglecting God's word throughout the week. Don't numb yourself to sin. Have a militant attitude towards sin. Sometimes you only have three seconds to make a decision. And you need to be already armed in your mind what you will do before you face it. Verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Live the rest of your lives for God's purposes. You are released from the grip of sin. It has no more power over you. The story has been told of a captain of a ship. The stresses and unknowns of the sea took a toll on his psyche. And he began saying obscene things. Commanding ridiculous tasks. Putting the crew in danger with his bad decision making. He just simply lost his mind. And it became so bad that they had to lock him in the bottom of the ship. 
and the second officer took command of the ship. The old captain would still bark orders and the crewmen could hear. Their instinct was to obey, but they fought that natural desire. They reminded themselves that they have a new captain now. The old man may continue barking orders, but they no longer have to obey. And the same is true for you. You may still hear the old captain telling you things to do. Satan barking orders. But you don't have to obey. You are no longer under his command. For the rest of your life, you have a new captain. Now, Peter gives the reader the reason to obey verse 2 in verse 3. Notice. For the time, is, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Notice the list. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. The time has passed. You've left that life behind. You've spent enough time doing what the pagans did. The Christian leaves behind that type of behavior. Peter's list is unique. The first five items involve unrestrained desires for sex, food, and alcohol. It describes how many Americans live on the weekend. First, sensuality. There are history books written about German brutality, but there are also history books written about Roman sensuality. They were more, they were more sexually liberated than even us. The Roman Empire was a sex-craved empire. They were known for their unrelenting passions. Whatever they desired, they did. No restraint, no waiting, no self-control, no moderation. Thirdly on the list, drunkenness. The, the Romans had practices that encouraged excessive drinking. They, they drink before meals on an empty stomach and then make themselves vomit just to have more food and wine. They had all types of drinking games. Fourthly, drinking parties. All rich Romans were expected to be fabulous entertainers. The more extravagant their feast with exotic produce, the more powerful they were perceived. In one extra-biblical Greek source, this phrase, drinking parties, is used to describe a band of drunken people that sang loudly and staggered through the streets causing a major public disturbance. Another one used the word describing a group of friends accompanying home a victor after the Roman games, sloshing in the streets. Fifthly, orgies. This is group sex. Roman orgies are described in the history books. If you happen to be wandering the streets of the ancient Roman Empire at dusk on some evenings, Hundreds of complete strangers, males and females of all social classes, would be lured to events in splendid marble-floored villas where they would be bombarded with seductive advances. It made Las Vegas seem like Disney World. Finally, the sixth description, lawless idolatry. Most commentators believe this is referring to other religions of the day using prostitution as a worship ritual. Religious prostitution was an acceptable thing. And Peter is no jellyfish preacher. He has a backbone calling other religions of his day idolatrous. Now let me apply this in three ways. 
First, holding a biblical sexual ethic will likely bring suffering. Holding a biblical sexual ethic will likely bring suffering. All these readers were surrounded by a Roman Empire sex ethic. Roman sexuality was about dominance. A real man dominated in the bedroom as he did on the battlefield. Abuse of women and abuse of slaves was common. Pedophilia was accepted as long as it was with a lower class. Now, whatever you know about the Bible, I'm sure you know this. It lays out its own sexual ethic. It permits and celebrates sex within the bounds of marriage, but then forbids all of what the Romans allowed. Christianity protected children, respected women. <laughs> do, do you see it? Christianity did not simply represent an alternate system of sexual ethics, but one that condemned the existing system, the system that was foundational to Roman identity and stability. Tim Challey said Christians were outsiders, Christians were traitors, Christians were dangerous. Their brand of morality threatened to destabilize all of society. Church, you are in a society that is hell-bent on permitting and celebrating nearly everything except sex within marriage. Your biblical sex ethic will likely cause you to suffer as it was doing with these original readers. Christianity was an assault on the sexual ethic of the culture. Second application, you must have a definite break with these sensual sins. You must have a definite break with these sensual sins. Helm says, Peter is shouting, enough already, stop! The redeemed living in an ongoing fraternity party is inconsistent with the gospel. By the way, don't break with these sins in person, but then watch the same sins on TV. Our Roman parties could be our beach parties or our elegant balls. I don't have on enough clothes. I have a drink in my hand and I'm hanging off someone I'm not married to. Let's put that on social media. Now, now, here's the dirty little secret. Wearsby said, sometimes you can forget the bondage of sin and only remember the pleasures of sin. And then something in you wishes you could go back and do it just one more time. May God preserve you from this world so that its smiles never allure you. Charles Spurgeon said, when you've been redeemed, you will no longer wish to do what you had been doing. You will not ask for an hour's furlough or respite, but this will be your cry. No longer, no longer will I abide in sin. John Bunyan said, will you have your sins and go to hell? Or will you give them up and go to heaven? There is no other alternative. As God lives, it must be one of these two. Leave your sinful lifestyle and run to Christ. Now, some of you are Christians. Some of you are Christians who will, in a horrible moment of weakness, do some of this stuff. 
and then you will feel dirty on the outside and dirty on the inside after you do it. And that is a really good thing. You can't enjoy it like you used to because the Holy Spirit is saying, this is not you anymore. Now some of you will do the sensual sins here and it will not bother you. And that's a really bad thing. That's a sign that you were never a Christian to begin with. There is a radical change of behavior to those who belong to Christ. We don't live like the Romans. We're not addicted to their drink or self-medication. Don't become accustomed to the ethic of your society. A couple months ago, I ate in a restaurant in Gulf Shores, Alabama after fishing with Weston. When I walked in, I thought, why is, this, why is it so dark in here? And I'm a slight germaphobe, so that stuff just scares me. Uh, why is it so dark in here? And I told Sarah, this is the darkest restaurant I've, I've ever been in. Why are the lights turned down so low? You know what's crazy? By the end of the meal, I was accustomed to the darkness. It was no longer unusual for me. You can grow accustomed to the darkness of your society. The third truth I want to get across to you under make a definite break with sin is this. God doesn't have T-Rex arms. He can reach way down to redeem. God's not like, oh, I wish I could reach him. No. He can reach way down. Peter assumes these church people have been involved in drunken parties and orgies. They actually used to do all these things, but no longer do. They see the bankruptcy of their former way of life. Jesus reached down in the gutter and brought them out, dusted them off, cleaned them up, washed them with his blood, and set them on a new path. Apias, Decimus, Gaius, Lucius, Cassia, Priscilla, Marcus, Publius, Titus, and Tiberius used to live by the Roman sex ethic. They would buy prostitutes, have multiple sexual encounters, hit every bar and stumble home. But God reached down. Now on a Sunday morning, they drank the preached word. And many of you can testify, that was me before God in mercy reached down. And some of you parents may be asking, how can we raise our kids surrounded by all this? When Peter was writing this letter and, and sending his kids out to get milk, they were passing orgies on the streets. God never designed for you to raise your children in some utopia. You are raising your kids among the heathen. Teach them to arm their minds to follow Christ. The first three verses tell us to make a definite break with sin. Verse 4, 5, and 6 tell us, expect pushback from those who love sin. Notice verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. When you refuse to participate in the sins that the culture has normalized, you will be maligned. Peers will look at you as a weirdo 
What are you? A Puritan? If you've been popular your whole life, this is going to be difficult for you. Because they're going to mock you for not sleeping with your date on prom night. Not going to the same places and doing the same flood of debauchery. G.K. Chesterton famous, famously wrote a century ago, Fallacies do not cease to be fallacies because they become fashions. One historian wrote about the strong sense of betrayal felt by non-Christians when Christians decline participation in normal cultural activities. He said, Family members who broke ancestral practices on the basis of their newfound faith showed an appalling lack of concern for their familial responsibilities. Plus, it was a novel religion, a recent manufacturer. The exclusivity of Christians' religion, their arrogant refusal to take part in or to consider valid the worship of any god but their own, deeply wounded public sensibilities because the gods protected the Roman Empire. So such an unnatural and ungrateful attitude to the gods even branded them as atheists. These church people have... These church people are viewed by the culture as killjoys who lived gloomy lives devoid of pleasure because they rejected the theater with its risque performances, gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore, sex outside of marriage, drinking, slander, lying, covetousness, and theft. This attitude toward contemporary Roman customs and, and morals shouted, a disloyalty to Rome. Church, when are you going to understand that unsaved people are blind to spiritual truth and dead to spiritual enjoyment? These readers, their new life no longer allowed them the kind of full participation in the cultural activities. They don't sing their songs or use their locker room language. And this produced resentful astonishment, a, a surprised hatred. L let me bring this verse to your workplace. Your co-workers will not understand when you refuse to compromise your integrity. Your friends BC, that's before Christ, your friends BC will be confused while you're not still running with them. They will be genuinely surprised why you choose to no longer keep their company. Your friend will not understand the radical change that's taking place in your life. Why aren't you rushing headlong into this flood of debauchery with us? The word flood is used of rock pools filling up at sea during high tide. Why don't you go to those same watering holes anymore? And I must warn you, beloved, the surprise will turn to slander. You must expect anger, not applause. Ladies, your lady friends whose lives are filled with lust and they, they will feel threatened or judged by how you live differently. You may be socially ostracized. I am not preparing you for a culture that claps for Christianity. I am preparing you for a culture that despises Christianity. Why do you waste your day off going to church? Why don't you go fishing or play some golf or sleep in or mow the grass? They will feel crowded by your holiness. 
Your very presence provokes that unspoken reminder. Martin Luther used to say that they feel the hound of heaven breathing down their necks in the presence of a Christian. Now verse 5 is dynamite. (laughs) But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Accountability after death was not widely taught in the pagan world. But Peter comforts his churches with it. Judgment awaits those who malign us. God is ready. He's not still shuffling papers. He is ready to judge. And that judgment could come anytime he chooses. No one will escape his judgment. You will have answerability. This is forensic language. You will give an account. All men and women will give an account to God. He will judge the living and the dead. One commentator wrote, death does not exempt a person from God's coming judgment. So Christian, turn your eyes to the upper story, not merely the lower story. They may make your life miserable. They may even take your life. But after, they will face the judge. Calvin said, death does not hinder Christ from being always our defender. Verse 6, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Stop there. That's those who were now dead as Peter was writing. Those who were now dead as Peter was writing. The gospel was preached to them when they were living and they clung to this gospel and life and death. Let's continue. That though judged in the flesh... That's the eyes of men. Judge, condemned by society the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is proof that there was an advantage to being a Christian despite public perception because they are now with God. Now I have three closing thoughts, but I don't want you to turn me off. Three closing thoughts, one for non-Christians, one for the Christian who leans toward legalism, and one for the Christian who is nearly defeated because of this text. One for non-Christians, one for the Christian who leans toward legalism, and one for the Christian who is nearly defeated because of today's text. First, the non-Christian. Some of you are non-Christians, and you come each week You don't hide the fact that you're not a Christian. And and really, you're not even sure why you come each week. You say little things like, Kyle, I come just to watch you burn. Or or you say things like, I'm on a journey. And it's a lot of journey talk. But here's the thing with the journey. It leads to a destination. You need to stop this journey nonsense and say, Christ, I submit to you as Lord. Some of you, for the very first time in your life, you are feeling, this morning, dirty. You are feeling shame for the things you have done in life. And I want to be clear, I didn't produce that in you. That is the Holy Spirit. He is calling you. He is wooing you. He is demanding of you that you repent of your sin and run to Jesus for salvation. He suffered that you might have eternal life. 
That's for non-Christians. Now, for the Christian who leans toward legalism. And if you're saying, that's not me, that is you. That is you. For the Christian who leans toward legalism, don't you dare grow prideful reading this passage. Don't you dare think I could never commit those sins. Don't be a religious hypocrite. Live a life of constant repenting. Unless the Lord restrains you, you will be back in that life tomorrow. Closing thought for non-Christians. A closing thought for Christians who lean toward legalism. Now finally, for the Christian who is nearly defeated because of this text. Friend, there is no need to feel beaten down or unaccepted because of this text. You have committed horrible sins, but you have a promise in Scripture that if you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. If you have a desire to repent, that's a gift unwrap it and walk in the forgiveness that is yours through Christ. Repentance always begins with a note of despair, but ends with a note of relief. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.